Hey, TYT, I'm Nomi Konst. Uh, we have Didi Guttenplan, right? Right. Did I say it right? I did. You did. <laughs> See, we don't have teleprompters at TYT yet in these studios, so I have to remember everything. It's a very hard task. Including long names. Including long names, and I, you know, of all people, I should be sensitive because my name is Nomi Kikonst. Uh, but we are <laughs> here to talk about Don's new article in The Nation um, about Texas, the Texas showdown in the latest copy of The Nation, which is also online. Uh, it's about some key races in Texas and and how progressives are, you know, faring seemingly doing well or organizing well yeah, there's in Texas. A, there's a kind of an uprising in Texas. I mean, Texas has a long history as a populist state, um, and there's definitely something going on. And part of what's going on are these candidates running in congressional races in districts where Hillary Clinton beat Donald Trump, but you have a Republican incumbent. At the same time, as we've seen all across the country, when progressives come and run for office and they come and they can be incredibly well organized, they can raise money, they can have a great campaign. But centrist Democrats never somehow say, you know, we're going to get out of the way and let this really well organized progressive come and take this seat and run against this Republican and unseat them. So why, why wouldn't they, though? I mean, this is what I, I don't understand. If, if they realize that there's a cheaper way of doing things and they actually don't have to invest as much in that race, wouldn't they be incentivized? Well, you would think so, but it's about, it's about power and control of the Democratic Party. I mean, you know, the, you, you hear often in journalism talk about the, a fight for the soul of the Democratic Party. That assumes that there is a soul in the Democratic <laughs> Party, and I'm pretty skeptical about that. But there's certainly a fight for whose hands are on the wheel of the Democratic Party and whether it's going to keep steering right down the center of the road or whether it's going to steer to the left as people like you and I would like it to do. As people are beginning to see through the DCCC and realize that it's essentially a protection racket for incumbent Democratic Congress members. But, but this is not a Democratic seat. No, exactly. So this is, this is a seat where you would think they would just sit back and mm -hmm. say, We've got a great crop of candidates. Let's see who prevails, and then we'll come in and back them. Mm -hmm. But they are trying to pick winners, and their criterion for, for picking winners is essentially who will Republicans be comfortable voting for. Their strategy is not to try and broaden the Democratic base, not to bring voters who've stopped voting back to the party, not to give anybody who's given up hope any reason to have hope or an incentive to vote. It's to say to Republican soccer moms, you know, Trump is that vulgar guy, uh, and here's somebody who's polite and otherwise very much like a Republican, so vote for her. Do they say this publicly? Does the DCCC say it publicly? The DCCC doesn't say it publicly. They talk about uh, viability, and what they mean by viability is somebody who can raise a lot of corporate money. The change that happened to the Democratic Party way back with Bill Clinton and the DLC saying, you know, we are not going to do anything that's going to be economically radical. We're not going to do anything that's redistributive in any way. We're not going to differ in any significant way on foreign policy from the neocon consensus. And we're just going to keep, you know, it's going to be offering people a choice of Coke or Pepsi. And that's, that's what we're reducing electoral politics to. And we've seen all over the country that the the effect of that over 20, 25 years is that people who want something different from Coke or Pepsi stop voting. Mm -hmm. Or people who are, their teeth are decaying because of Coke They're, or yeah. Pepsi well, they need another their, option. Their lives are rotting away and our, exactly. you know, our country is becoming an oligarchy, but, if, but you can't talk about it. 
Because if you talk about it, the DCCC won't back you. Does it even matter, though? I mean, it's, it's I, you know, this is one of the things that, it, it's almost like the big idea that, does it matter that the DCCC actually backs you in the end? Well, it's a good question. Um, it matters, I mean, it, it backfired in this race, in that when they monstered Laura Moser and uh, Ryan Grimm at The Intercept wrote about it, and I wrote about it in The Nation, mm -hmm. and other people started writing about it, the publicity that that brought actually got Laura more money for the, right. for the primary, so she made it through to the runoff. On the other hand, being, when you're running against someone who's been designated the winner, Mm -hmm. by the kind of party establishment, that's tough. Mm -hmm. And it means that some big donors will hang back. Uh, it means that you have trouble sometimes paying to keep an even playing field on television campaign, television advertising. In terms of this distributed organizing, is it, is it, is it cheaper? Is it, why doesn't the D-Trip just take that model? If, if, I guess the, the big question is, do they really want to win? They only want to win if they can remain in control, is what I think. And it's about control. You can't do distributive organizing and stay in control. It's funny because I've talked to, I talked to Zephyr Teachat about this because you know the, the whole concept of distributive organizing was begun in the Howard Dean campaign in 2004. And what happened is the Obama people took the model over and they successfully raised you know, millions and millions of dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars, but they it was very centralized control. They never turned over control of the organizing to the grassroots. And as a result, you had a successful presidential campaign with no grassroots organization, no movement connection. Mm -hmm. And what happened? Obama got reelected. The Democratic Party got hollowed out. Mm -hmm. There was no defense when the Republicans started you know, playing offense. So essentially, the Democratic Party lacks the organizers that are needed to win elections. Yes, it lacks mentality. It lacks the organizers because it, it it it's a party of consultants instead of organizers. And part of that, I mean, if we want to go back to the early '80s and late '70s, there was an assault on workers in the Democratic Party. They they there was the the strategy was to literally eliminate. You know the unions from the party from having that influence, which is essentially well. That's right. Because, well, because the unions were the the unions were the only alternate power centers to donors. Right. Um, you know, and that's still true in New York City. Mm -hmm. You know, the big municipal unions in New York City can still come come up with phone banks. They can still turn people out to knock on doors. It's one of the reasons that you can have a, a mayor like De Blasio in New York. You can have more radical politics in New York because mm -hmm. there are alternate power centers to the big donors and the whole movement of the Democratic Leadership Council in the, in the 70s was to oppose the unions, to take, mm -hmm. to take their power away from the party, and to, to make the party more friendly, more corporate friendly. So going back to Texas, because um, the, you know, union power in Texas is not it's, what it's, it's like in yeah. New York. Yeah. Uh, it's a right-to-work state. It's a right-to-work state, you know, as many states are now in this country and growing to be. Without union support, and, it, it, and relying on volunteer organizing, how is it going to be sustainable for these movements to exist? I mean, how, how can they sustain themselves without union organizing? Well, it's a really good question. I mean, I think in the long run, it's going to be very, very difficult. Um, mm -hmm. So in the medium run, we have to get Democrats in who can undo some of the Republican union-busting laws, uh, and particularly at state levels. Mm -hmm. I understand the shot for progressives to win in primaries makes it makes sense entirely. But in some of these districts that are, are conservative-leaning, 
uh, and they're going to be throwing a ton of money. Millions. Republicans are going to be throwing millions of dollars at these congressional seats. And I'm not saying that the message of progressives isn't winnable. It's getting that message to compete against the conservatives. Is it going to be as easy as, as we all imagine? No, know? it's not going to be as easy as we all imagine. There's no shortcuts. Uh, there's no magic bullet. And it's not just messaging. So mm -hmm. it's, I guess one way to look at it is, I think it was Ann Richards who said that Texas isn't a red state, it's a blue state with a turnout problem. And great line. It is a great line. And if it's not Ann Richards, I apologize to whoever said it. Sounds like her. It or Jim Hightower. It certainly wasn't me, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, Jim Hightower's comments are wonderful, but they're not always repeatable on television. <laughs> and the turnout problem, of course, is deliberate policy by the Texas Republicans. You know, it's a state with a very energetic vote suppression. Mm -hmm. And it's also a state where they practice the arts of Cracking and stacking. So do you know about cracking and stacking? No, I do not. What is that? So San Antonio or Austin, big liberal cities, right, mm -hmm. in Texas. They, they're blue cities. They, they have Democratic mayors, typically. Uh, but they have these, te these congressional districts. So instead of, instead of the congressional districts being squares, rectangles, whatever, they tend to be pie-shaped. And the point of the pie is in the city. So you get just oh. enough of the urban voters, which you are cracking into pieces, and then you spread out, in this case, I mean, in the case of Rick Trevino's district, 400 miles from San Antonio to Marfa in southwest Texas, or near Wida El Paso, um, through miles and miles of desert with, you know, basically farmers and oilmen in the district, and you get enough of them to dilute down the urban voters. Mm -hmm. um, or if you have a district where you've got, let's say, Latino voters, mm -hmm. African-American voters, you stack them. So you put them all in one district. Right. So that that district is always going to be Democratic, but none of the other districts are. You, you stack them. So that's, that, those are the arts of gerrymandering, cracking and, and stacking. It's interesting because I've heard defenses from, um, from some progressive groups that you know, are focused on people of color, and, and they defend this type of gerrymandering because they, I don't agree with it, but they think that that's a way to, to, to keep that person of color in office. Well, it is a way to keep that person of color in office, but it's deeply corrupting. Right. And I mean, that's, I suppose, my problem with it is that then it becomes an entitled seat uh, that the person in office knows they don't have to, they don't really have to listen to their constituents because they're never going to have uh, serious challenges in the primaries. It be, they become, you know, and there's like lots of history about this. Of course, some, some office holders in districts like this are wonderful paragons mm -hmm. of, you know, progressive values and independence. But all too often, somebody gets in a district, they stay in it, it becomes clear that they own it, mm -hmm. and then they start renting themselves out to corporate donors because it's a lot easier to make six phone calls to rich people than hundreds and hundreds of thousands of right. door knocks to ordinary people. So let's talk a little bit about Emily's list before we wrap up, because there's the DCCC strategy, finding Republicans, self-funders, and then there's the Emily's list strategy, which, uh, to me, I can't figure out the logic. <laughs> if, you, if, you, if you can figure out the Emily's list strategy, I'd, I'd love to know what it is. It's basically uh, not progressive females. That's, that's what I'm seeing. It's very confusing to me, because I've heard, um, both from the DTRIP and Emily's list, uh, you know, we're not supporting this person because it's a swing district. It's an R plus one district, a D plus one. It's how they measure, you know, right. where, where... How flippable it how is. How flippable it is. And so 
they oftentimes will say, we're not going to support the progressive candidate in this race or this candidate because it's, it's just too close. But it's all based on this assumption that picking the more conservative or the empty suit candidate, I mean, sometimes there are these candidates that have no ideas. They're just rich. Well, often, not sometimes. <laughs> no, <you're right. laughs> often, no, because the, the, other, <laughs> the other ideal, I mean, you know, if you're putting together your ideal corporate Democrat, it's somebody who used to be a Republican, mm -hmm. served in the military, and can self-fund. Mm -hmm. And those are, those are the three most attractive characteristics. Right. Right. And, you know, sometimes self-funding is really all you get. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and they'll still pick that person. And I guess what we can say now is we know it doesn't work, you know. If that worked, we'd have President Hillary Clinton mm -hmm. leading a massively Democratic Congress. Exactly. You know, we keep, we keep trying it. With the Democratic Party tried that. That was the Rahm Emanuel strategy. And, you know, he tried it for the eight years of the Obama administration, and we lost seats and state houses all across the country with that, the strategy of offering Republican clones as Democrats. I've heard some people say this that guns are now becoming a distraction away from the progressive message. If there's any place that I think guns you know, are serious, it's Texas. I mean, there's literally a shooting in Texas, a mass shooting occurring right now as we sit here. But yeah. Do I think it's a distraction? Guns are part of the no. culture. I think, I think Texans have a... Look, I vote in Vermont, which also has a different gun culture mm -hmm. than the Upper West Side of Manhattan. Mm -hmm. um, and I think what the kids have done with mm -hmm. forcing guns onto the agenda and not letting adult politicians off the hook is fabulous. I think it's one of the most important things happening in politics. I also think that, uh, you know, there's a Greenberg poll that shows that Texans, as a majority, favor the kind of sensible gun restrictions of, you know, no uh, automatic, no semi-automatic weapons, background checks for everybody, closing the gun hole loophole, raising the age of buying guns to 21. A majority of Texans are in favor of that. So part of what you discover when you actually go to Texas is that a lot of the stereotypes are not true. It's a big state. You can get great Tex-Mex food there, but not everybody is a reactionary in a cowboy hat. Mm -hmm. The <laughs> other thing is the Democratic Party has to figure out how it can get with and support, I think, this, this movement. And I think it is figuring it out. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you got the sense that a lot of Democratic politicians would just like the whole gun thing to go away so they can stop talking about it. And I don't think the kids are going to let them, and I think that's great. The art of gerrymandering has been brought to a very high level in Texas, so mm -hmm. it's going to be tough. It's, there are no seats that are going to be easily flippable, mm -hmm. and we're not going to get any help, you know, from the certainly from the Republicans, and we're not going to get any help from the Democratic organizations. So, right. in a sense, that's why w win or lose, what Lauren Moser is doing is so important because. The only way it's going to happen is by building our own organizations. Fascinating article. Great read. Uh, fascinating things happening in populist Texas. Exactly. Thank you, Don. Thanks for having it's, me on. It's the June 4th through 11th edition of The Nation.